Welcome back to From Start to Scale with Alex Newman, where founders, CEOs, sales leaders, investors, and the best of the best share their strategies and tactics, how they scaled their business and broke through the next level. Hear what worked and what didn't so you can avoid critical mistakes and scale your business. Now let's get into it. Welcome to the show. Today's guest is Jim Franklin, former CEO of SendGrid. SendGrid went public and then was ultimately acquired by Twilio a few years ago. He is an active limited partner in Boulder, Colorado, where he's very involved in the tech scene, mentoring, advising companies. Jim, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show today. You bet. Uh, this is one of my favorite topics, talk about scaling and scaling sales and revenue in particular. Awesome. This is uh, this is what we like. I, uh, I think that you have a really interesting story. You have a, you have a pretty amazing uh, history as far as companies that you've grown. We'll talk a little bit about SendGrid. Feel free to ju jump back and forth to some of your other things that you've done at Decisioneering or Hyperion, even even kind of the all the acquisitions all the way through up to, to um, Oracle. But uh, we'll have some really good takeaways. Top three that we're really going to have for everybody is going to be hiring senior talent early, go direct before you go channel, and go enterprise when your customers take you there. So I like to go at the very, very beginning, share our share our main takeaways, and then we'll uh, backfill uh, those into a little bit more uh, more context. Where I'd love to get started is uh, kind of your entry point into SendGrid. So you were not the founder. So a lot of people think that, hey, you were co-founder, CEO of uh, Sengrid, but you were actually were not the founder of the company. You came in later on as a CEO. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of starting there, and then we can we can tell the story from that? Yeah, I came in as employee twenty five at Sengrid as the CEO. It was about twelve months after TechStars. Uh, they raised about uh, seven hundred fifty thousand after TechStars, and then another five million from Foundry Group um, shortly thereafter. Um, they had incredible traction uh, of revenue. Uh, when I got there, they were doing 300000 per month uh, and adding on the order of 100000 per month. So that is, the, that is what you talk about, product market fit. It was amazing. Uh, I got involved in the business because I've been known around the community a long time. Uh, did get acquired into Oracle, stayed three and a half years. Uh, I had quit to do my own sort of whatever retirement, but too young to not work or whatever, and frankly, not rich enough, right? But I could be choosy about who I worked with, and, uh, and I've known Brad Feld a long time, and he told me to take a year off, take a sabbatical. That's what I was on, a sabbatical. And then a year from now, let's see, we'll find something fun to do together, once I kind of got some distance between me and my last company. And, and uh, then Brad called a month later, and he said, forget what I told you about sabbatical. Have I got a deal for you? Right? We gave these five million bucks. They're three blocks from your house, uh, and they haven't spent the money. Uh, because the founders of Sangrid are awesome people, but they're technical and kind of view running a business like their own checking account, which is sort of a break-even proposition. Uh, and the big thing that had happened to Sangrid that drove the need for a CEO was that Amazon uh, came into the market uh, with a uh, similar product at one-third the cost. And uh, Isaac Saldana, the primary founder, uh, did a lot of things right and has amazing skills, but sort of competitive response is not his wheelhouse. And so the Twitterverse sort of blew up around, you know, this is a Sengrid killer and Sengrid should lower their prices and all this stuff. And as I had been talking to Isaac and some of the founders, I felt like things were going so well, there wasn't a lot for me to do. But when Amazon came in, I'm like, oh, I'm in. It's like, I'm not sure what we'll do, but whatever it is, it's going to be exciting because 
So that's yeah. actually what got you the most excited about about getting on board. Yeah, there was like a big challenge. Now it wasn't like this company's, you know, growing so fast that it, it, it has its own set of issues, which we'll talk about uh, some. But I mean, they're all high class problems for sure. Versus if you don't have that top line growth. Uh, and so, yeah, how to figure out, because I didn't know anything about cloud. I didn't know anything about Amazon. Uh, and so I knew about, you know, people and teams and scaling, had a tribe of people I could bring uh, with me to get to work on things. Uh, but it turns out Brad had done a great job of setting the table. Uh, so it was a little bit unusual. They sort of hired the VPs first and then a CEO. Uh, and so, uh, but that worked out well because we all knew Brad, basically. We're tech stars, David, and we came from that ecosystem. So we had a very similar uh, set of expectations and, and, and how we worked together. Uh, and so uh, that was very good. I think the uh, uh, key person was Denise Hulse, now Franklin, uh, who was there early as really the first non-technical employee, I think like employee five. And she was, I think, sort of the ideal hire at that stage. We have a technical founding team, hire some more technical people, and they had no offices, but they had a lot of revenue coming in, but very, very, very little structure. Uh, and. Uh, and so she was able to kind of do everything uh, and then was able to hire really good people. And the thing she did so well was hiring senior early. Uh, what I see through my board work or investments is that technical founders like, oh, we need to hire a sales rep, right? To go sell our stuff. It's like huge mistake, right? It's like you want to get someone who's not too old, like mid-career, <laughs> that is like low ego, has a variety of playbooks that they've been part of different companies where they've you know, sold hardware through channel, or they sold enterprise software direct, or they did telesales software, or they did, you know, uh, product-led growth. So they can, be, and the key is flexibility. My favorite question to ask when you're hiring a key executive like that is, how will you adapt your playbook for the facts on the ground here? Because you assume they have a playbook because they've done something famous, that's why you're talking to them, right? The, come into your company, but how are they going to adapt that for the facts on the ground here? So they need to know the facts on the ground for your company. Have they done homework? Do they know sort of what are the challenges you're sort of going to face, you know, or you know, where are some of the rocks hidden that you're going to go bump into? And then what are you going to do differently? Uh, and so one of my management practices was like one office solution. I'll have everyone together. Um, well, the segment, we had an office in Southern California, Orange County, where the founders are from, Riverside. And then, of course, in Boulder, where the t they went through Techstars. And so I'm like, I'll learn how to run a distributed company, right? So I'm going to talk my playbook, you know, around uh, core values and this sort of thing, the four H's. And, uh, but we'll do that in a distributed uh, environment, which uh, I got schooled on that. Yeah. That's kind of hard. Yeah, you got, I mean, hey, I, mean you got a, I got a bunch of different learnings here. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to, to talk a little bit about that senior talent early. I've, I've heard a lot of people, specifically when you think of uh, like go-to-market, VP of sales, VP of marketing, you often hear this advice of, well, don't hire, their, hire this 30-year in industry vet who has done it and maybe taken a company public. It's, you know, you got to go hire the, the young gun, the, the person who's going to do all of the work for you. And there's this kind of like, one, one thinks one way and one thinks this other way, but, but from what I'm hearing is, is you're actually saying go hire the person like kind of in the middle who has learned a bunch, still hungry, and has done a bunch of different things. So it's actually not just, hey, my playbook or my, my path towards selling SendGrid is you know enterprise or mid-market or whatever it is. Go find exactly the person who's done that before, but actually find flexibility of a bunch of different types of things 
and have them come in and they can kind of be player coach, kind of fill in the gaps, kind of do a whole bunch of things. Like, talk a little bit more about that because a lot of advice is all over the map and a lot of people lean towards hiring someone to go do it for you. Yeah, so uh, I think you laid that out well. The key is what I call hiring a rising star profile. And so you look at someone's career trajectory, right? You want to like connect the dots. You, could, you see the slope of that curve. And then you want to figure out the job you need done. How does that line up where that slope is pointing to? Right? So if you only hire people who are those 30-year veterans, they're the been there, done nots. Right? And so in MBA school, you learn how to hire been there, done nots. You get out you know, your criteria and you publish you know, a job spec and you get a bunch of candidates and they check all the boxes. Well, frankly, it's going to be kind of boring. Right? It might be efficient, uh, and it's good if you're in a, a high-certainty environment. So like when I was at Oracle, you've been doing the same thing for 30 years, and there's not a lot of uncertainty. But when you're in a scaling startup from Series C to B+, let's say, there's still so much uncertainty about maybe it worked last year, it's not going to work next year, or who knows what's going to happen, right? Some big competitor partner loves you or hates you, and something just completely switches. And so um, that's another concept we call rainbow teams, but we can talk about that in a minute. But the rising star profile. And so when I design a job and a candidate, just my own personal compass, I like to think that maybe one-third of that job is something that this person has done in the past. And that's kind of how they pay for themselves. That's the part they know. But two-thirds of that job they've not done yet. But I think uh, that they can. Uh, one of my uh, weaknesses slash superpowers might be I believe in people uh, more than they believe in themselves. So whether that's looking at an interview candidate, a partner, a customer, or whatever, this uh, high sense of optimism that I think they can do it. That's why, of course, it's important to have interview teams <laughs> so a lot of people can say, well, wait a minute, Jim, you fall in love with everybody, right? You think this yeah. is really Checks good. Checks and balances, right? It's like, right, it's like, whoa, right, we need to have this. And, and I've certainly made some bad, bad hiring decisions where the person's trajectory was not steep enough to meet the job, right? And that's the set up to fail problem. And I'm slow to fire people because I think that they'll turn it around or, you know, all that stuff. And so then you end up having, we had a, a person and with one company who was not saying a director of IT that was just was really struggling. Uh, and you know, that person not having a good life if they're if they're mismatched for the job. Uh, but we did hire a consultant and then one of their people came and ran our department. And when they did that, it was like we never talked about IT again. It's just everything always worked. It's just like, oh, that's nice. And so it's saying the classic would be Chad, our VP or our CFO had been a rally software. Uh, with Tim Miller, uh, an excellent CEO, and he'd scaled Rally from you know 50 to 500 people or whatever it was, and, and he basically did the exact same thing at Sengrid. And he brought a lot of his lieutenants, uh, the FP&A person and controller came in, uh, you know, to Sengrid, and they brought their people, right? Who are still some are still at Twilio uh, these years later, and they're really really high capacity people. And so our our finance department was much more on the been there done that side. But overall, I like I look out across you know 200 employees that that mix is sort of a, a two-thirds, one-thirds. Like the two-thirds of one job is rising star, and maybe two-thirds of the jobs are sort of rising star focused. And one-third, you know, or like uh, our, our, our CISO, uh, David Campbell, uh, you, know, our, you know, is an excellent security officer, right? It's just amazing. So he was a been there, done that, but also a founder of Jump Cloud. And so you know, he gets startups. And so he had that right mix of how to preserve our culture while being safe enough, right? Which is a really hard judgment call. We need to have a... That'd be a hard one to do a rising star on. Yeah, uh, that's well. Yeah. It depends on the role for sure. Or it depends, depends on the department for sure. Yeah. I think so when you're 
you come into the company, you're 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 going at three hundred k a month. You're adding a hundred k. I mean, you come in and you're like, where am I going from here? Like, I'm pouring fuel on the fire. It sounds like you got a couple of awesome VPs here, and it's like, is this like, uh, don't screw it up? Is this, hey, what, where where do I kind of make my mark? Is it, you know, do I I just kind of you know, Amazon comes in, they got a lower price point. Like, how, how, how are you navigating all of a sudden this, like, exponential growth every single month? Yeah, yeah. so I had never seen growth like that. So this was personal learning for me to get a handle on, you know, for a million a revenues, trailing gap, real revenues, not ARR and all that stuff. You know, we're a million in revenue. Then we did seven million my first year. You know, trying to, it was, a, you know, I was in there half the year, not nine, nine months. And then working with Chad, our CFO, trying to come up with projection for the next year, I wasn't used to the ARR math. You know, he's like, we'll do 14 if we don't just shoot customers and rip up contracts we already have. And so, you know, projecting doubling with 100% certainty and more like tripling was sort of our more reach number. We ended up hitting like, you know, almost that higher number, high teens, you know, off seven. And so that was a, that took a lot of uh, modeling and getting comfortable. Then as we sort of continued to go forward, we could sort of trust, um, trust that curve a little bit more uh, as it uh, as it went forward. Um, but the key, I think, was really around Amazon in that, in that first, uh, you know, weeks and months in the job because, again, the Twitterverse was just all about, you know, Sangrid's dead. We all love Sangrid, but, boy, you know, Amazon's here. And they're like, you got to lower the price and what are we going to do? And uh, it turns out that uh, Amazon coming into the market was, like, the best thing that could ever happen to us. And... Yeah, Denise, uh, and I was, so Isaac set us up with Heroku. We're the first app on Heroku, right? So getting into a marketplace, going that's going channel early, which I think is not good advice, right? I think you should do it direct early in a classic example. But SendGrid, you know, unique set of circumstances with this incredible pull model. Uh, and so you want to be wherever developers are. And so getting on to Heroku early, and then we tried to replicate that with Rackspace and SoftLayer and all the other uh, platforms where developers would build things. And basically, Denise would uh, try and call people, and they wouldn't call back, right? Yeah. But as soon as Amazon came out with an email delivery service, then all the other platforms need to have a checkbox against Amazon. Phone rings off the hook. Everyone's like, hey, where have you been? You know, we want to do a deal with you. And so I think another key lesson is we had, because we were growing so fast, we had access to capital, and we weren't worried about economics. And so we could treat each partner differently. And if you know Rackspace was treated completely different than SoftLayer because we wanted to basically just maximize our exposure to developers. We didn't care about our gross margins or who got credit for what or who owns the customer and all that stuff. And we did fine on those dimensions, but it wasn't like, and we didn't mount them, they said, oh, I'm gonna give everyone the same deal. You know, contrast that with a mature business like Oracle, and there's this, you know, platinum partner program and they charge the partners money and there's you know, just a lot of friction and stuff uh, around being a partner at Oracle. And we're like, Hey, soft later, you want to have your channel sales team sell our stuff? You know, we'll we'll fund the quota, right? So that the frontline sales managers are excited to move this product, right? And we'll we'll make sure we'll pay you whatever you need so that your man your management team, that whole chain, is incented to make this work. And with Rackspace, they didn't care about that. We got 100 percent of the revenue. Uh, they wanted us to use some of their infrastructure to send some of our mail. Uh, so we you know took down some of their servers and. You know, they were able to claim, you know, SendGrid infrastructure, you know, provider. And as a public company back then, they were, that was one of their key reporting metrics is how many servers did they deploy that quarter? And so we could, you know, contract for servers. That was sort of on the ops side, right? And that created some headaches with the ops people. But I'm like, because we had our own database. <laughs> yeah. Eventually, it's like, well, 
But we could always rent, you know, some of your servers and just send the mail to our servers and do all the work, right? Kind of put out listening posts, right? And have some blinking light machines, right? But they've all the rev rec criteria for all the public reporting. But it's just being flexible, um, keeping an eye on what your goal is. And I think a mistake a lot of founders make is the like the golden rule. They think that's they think that's a good idea, right? You might think it's a good idea, but you should treat other people not as you want to be treated, but as they want to be treated. Right. And so just like hiring senior early, I all the time, well, I can't afford that person. I can't afford that person. I said, well, that's just because if you took that job, you know, you'd need a big salary. But I know some people are really good at go to market that have a lot of playbooks that might have had a win or a kind of a win, or maybe they have a spouse that had a big win or something like that. And they don't need a salary at all. Right. What they're going to argue about is a lot of equity in your company. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, you might want That's to really more. interesting because it's not, I mean, it, you hear that a lot is, hey, I want, I want this person who I can hire. So I hire this, you know, this rising star. Well, some of these rising stars can be quite expensive, but it's not really about necessarily the salary. Not, I'm not saying for everybody, but there's often times that people want to come in and they want to have the equity because they are going to bust their butts and they're going to want to see, hey, I want some upside. For me, working my tail off, bringing my network, bringing my people, building out my team, help help me see the upside with it. That's you, how you can recruit. That's the that's the beauty of startups, right? Equity yeah, over uh, over salary. The, uh, uh, the the interest in employees and the upside versus the cash swings about every ten years, and so we're clearly going through one of those transitions now where people are probably a little more focused on the cash. Okay. But even down market like this, not everybody. There are people that have you know other sources of wealth. And so they're in it because of the impact, you know, whether they like your market, they want to learn about it. It's just, there's lots of different things at play. When I was a co-founder, we, uh, my, one of my co-founders, his brother had sold a company for a lot of billion dollars, you know, 20 years ago, back when a billion was a lot of money, right? And, and so uh, it's just, you know, it just set a, a different dynamic, right? It's like, oh, right, he doesn't need it. You know, it's just, you're not gonna need a bunch of money, right? Or if, or I know some people where their spouse is like an anesthesiologist or something, right? And they make a good living, you know, steady cash, good health insurance. And then, oh, well, this person, you know, can take a low salary or no salary or whatever, 60K or 100K. And, you know, and, but, they'll have, but they have an executive title and they've got a real job, right? Because they, you're going to want them to go do this. So you just don't, and don't make objections for yourself. No, sales one one thing, right? It's like, oh, I can't hold that person. Oh, really? Did you ask them? Oh, no. Well, let's. Let's have that conversation. Let's see, you know, and then and whatever the number is, you can structure it. I think if you're under 100 employees and you're halfway good with Excel, right, everyone can have their own little package. So when you do sell to Oracle or someone, everyone has to go with the same package. You're like, oh, shit, you didn't realize it. You know, you can customize things. I had a, uh, my best VP of sales I ever worked with, um, Saeed Hamid from Pakistan. Um, you know, he didn't drink, right? And he had really had no vices, uh, but he really wanted the new Mercedes. Uh, and so when he got his big bonus, he didn't want it in cash because they would go into the family pot of money and he didn't really have much say over that. Uh, and so he just drove a new car home and he said to his wife, like, hey, look what the company, they gave me a company car. <laughs> and, uh, you know, get to keep <laughs> like, yeah, so we leased him a guy's car, right? Like, that was yeah. basically paying out his bonus, uh, you know, over the lease payments, right? And it's like, that worked for him. And other people said, everyone has a different situation. So if you can sort of customize it, and if it's the VP role or whatever, and say, hey, what, you know, base do you need? And then can you structure, you know, variable, you know, layers of variable comp uh, to get into their cash, you know, contingent on fundraising or whatever, right? 
Um, so there's a lot of ways to skin it. And we can talk about just hiring salespeople as its own topic, but you know, the yeah. stock sale. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about, about hiring. Cause it, I, I know that we talked a little bit about initial hires. You come in, you got a couple of lieutenants, you got some VPs in place. Let's specifically talk about kind of that go to market motion. When you come in, these aren't your people, right? These are people already in there and, and Brad knows his stuff. So there's probably a, a bunch of people who you really respect and, and you come in and you're like, all right, I, they know their stuff, but maybe not everybody. And maybe they're not a good fit. And if you're growing at the rate that you're growing, things change in three months, six months, 12 months, pretty pretty, pretty fast. That, that That's exactly right. So I think that uh, the people that I'll say have the other Brad or David Cohen, Techstar sort of frame of reference, uh, it was a very solid team. Very unusual to find such a complete and uh, a good team. So I think it was smart to kind of keep that together. Uh, maybe it wasn't smart to keep it together for so long. Uh, so you, you do go through all those uh, things. And frankly, that's where I ran into uh, headwinds of my own abilities is I failed companies between zero and 100 people. A uh, number of times I spent $5 million, but I hadn't spent $50 million uh, on some uh, startup. Or, and so we went from 25 people to 250 people very quickly. Uh, and so uh, I ended up having more or less three offices of like 80 people each. And as I look back on that and I think, oh, that's sort of my comfort zone, right? And not uh, a different executive might have a different uh, frame of reference on, on what a big company is uh, or what a lot of people look like. Uh, so I think that the, the key was to that, that core group that worked for me, called those the VPs, was that then they hired this next layer, which was not at all Brad, right? That, that's what people they brought, their tribe, or sometimes it was, you know, it's all connected to this ecosystem, right? It's a small community. Um, but one key hire was uh, Carly Brantz. And so Carly had been at Return Path, which is a company that um, is sort of like Sengrid and was uh, tr uh, mentoring Sengrid and Isaac during Techstars. Uh, yeah. Isaac worked there physically uh, just in the months I read after Techstars. It was kind of an office sharing arrangement. Uh, and then Return Path had some issues, let all the American people go, including Carly. I don't remember exactly what she did there, but it was a fairly junior, mid-level, you know, maybe one level up from individual contributor role uh, there. But she knew at least our space around mail and sending stuff uh, pretty well. And so to hire her and then she just, you know, did a super great job building out a content team. And so we found content marketing was key to fielding the sales funnel, really on, mostly on the uh, 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 we call it the self serve model, and uh, and so we ended up having I think five full time content people and putting out a lot of uh, a lot of uh, things. Another key early hire was Tim Falls, who set up our developer relations, and then developer relations wasn't a thing back then, right? Twilio was inventing it about five steps ahead of us. I mean, literally in an airport, right? So we kind of travel around with Twilio. You know, and then some of our best dev rel people came from Twilio and just Tim Falls and you know, just doing the global thing. I remember being at the Microsoft uh, office in Mumbai uh, where they were launching a new LinkedIn API. And they know that no developers would touch it who were under 30 because they all think Microsoft is, you know, the Facebook or whatever. And they just hated it. And so uh, LinkedIn, Microsoft asked us, Twilio and Segrid to come and basically MC their developer API hackathon weekend to launch this API. And they probably had 300 people show up. It was an amazing event. Uh, we talk about just like hardworking people that came on very long train rides to be there, uh, but to see the magic of how that worked. And so 
getting people like Tim and then you know, hiring up, we ended up having you know, a dozen, 15 developer relations people. And again, how do you hire well? It was really understanding this market. It wasn't the traditional sales model, but we found that you know, to meet developers where they were, it was like hiring people from that uh, community. We hired a guy, Martin, out of London, who was famous in the London startup scene for music tech and music stuff. And so he put on this big concert and venues and he, you know, it's like he was an influencer is what we call him today. Yeah. Uh, and so um, they were interviewing him over a Zoom or Google, whatever this is, something like this. And uh, he, was, he was just really casual and funny, and, but he had this tribe of people, right? And so all we wanted him to do was put on the sangry blue shirt. Again, big part of the culture, everyone wore the blue shirt with the white. And then when he would basically MC a dev, or a dev event, you know, not, A, he had to keep doing his music, right? So it's part of his job for us is like, keep building your personal brand. And so we're totally cool with that. Uh, and then, but also, you know, same way, we want to create a brand in the UK and around Europe. And what we're basically drafting off his uh, followers and whatnot. And so I wanted people to wear the Sengrid thing, but then get this, never talk about Sengrid, right? As a developer, if someone asks you, you can say, oh yeah, here's how you turn it on or whatever. But you weren't up there at a microphone in a podium saying, oh, Sengrid, you know, does this or whatever. You never say that. Right, because it was developers telling other developers in the audience, right? That was the conversation we were fanning. So on the marketing, you know, top of funnel, I think a third of the people just searched for this, you know, Sangrid Google term and like a third of the people just typed it in. Right. So it's like, where'd all that come from? Right? How do we foster this? And we gave away about ten thousand t shirts a year. At ten bucks a shirt, that's only a hundred grand. Right. So, yeah. you know, I, I, I still got mine. So, uh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, uh, they were they were all over Boulder. So uh, Boulder and Denver. It's uh, it was, yeah. Well, they got all over the world. Mafia just swarmed everywhere for a while. Yeah, but when you're small, right? And how do you scale? When we only had 25-ish people, and we went to the first South by my second week on the job. I guess we went a year later. Was we had the blue shirts. Actually, that first year we had three colors. We had green, red, and blue. Uh, and our VP marketing, Robert, <laughs> you remember that? Jeez, that's okay. That, yeah, I mean, I remember when you guys got started. I, I remember Tim Falls working on a business plan called uh, SendGrid. I'm like, what is this? Yeah, so, but so we, basically, the crowd of South by chose that blue, that Robin Egg blue, and that became SendGrid blue. And so the the red and the green shirts became collector's editions, and we just went with that that blue and white. Uh, look going forward. But what we did is we always wore those shirts and we travel in a pack. So if you walked into a bar on 6th Street in Austin, right, and you've got eight or 10 sanguiners, which is like a third of the company, right, walking in, everyone's like, now, is this something that you are, are you, are you kind of telling the team? No, 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 no. Telling no. all these, this has just kind of happened no. throughout Sengrid? Yeah. Like, so it, how, I, what kind of influence did you have on a lot of this? Because this is like grassroots, spreading, no pitching Sengrid. Like, this well, is... This right, is so a no, different type are, of brand yeah. awareness. So there's a mix, I guess, of uh, how much my hand was in it versus. Uh, so I think I'm big on delegation. Maybe I'm self delusional about that. Um, I think I am. Uh, and so, uh, in the way, yeah, in my mind, yeah, we, they never pitched Frank. I'm sure sometimes they did, right? Um, but like, moving it past that was that was very organic. And you just kind of see what works. It, you know, travel a bunch. That's a you know, make a key, right? You just kind of got to be out there in the field. Um, you said, you know, how do you know when things are working, right? It's like, well, with it, you know, most of the marketing stuff, again, your normal playbook, right? Uh, test and measure, test and measure. We definitely did that. Professional marketing that Robert ran was really good at that. Uh, in fact, we had a we had a system 
where we told our VCs, which we had a lot, we said any of your portfolio companies or anyone you're thinking about being a portfolio company that has any kind of like digital marketing solution, we'll try it. And we will give the budget and the time, whatever they recommend to you know, show that it works. Right. So if they need five grand a month for three months, you know, or whatever it is. We'll just fund that. And then you can figure out, you know, if this is an investment you want to make. Because we are just trying to find different ways to uh, very efficiently reach around the world and find cloud developers. We're in that moment of creation was when they frictionlessly, you know, put our stuff in. And so Robert had built a very good system for uh, onboarding. And then uh, and we, then we'd offboard <laughs> a lot of these programs, too, because I didn't, you know, add net new things. You could kind of measure all that. But what I didn't want to measure, and this was a big uh, point of conflict, was the developer relations team. So when you had people like Martin in London who were just super authentic, uh, and, and they all, all were, as you know, like with, with Tim Falls. And if you start having them turn in lead reports and number of contacts they did and all this stuff, it just kills their soul, right? Because they don't want to think that they've, uh, that they've uh, sold out, right, and took a, took a W-2 job. Uh, I heard Mike Rowan, right? He's a Sengrid Labs, right? It's like, so you wouldn't pay you six figures, just, you know, work on stuff, throw things over. You can't be like, hey, or the DevRel people, like, here, you need to fill out the CRM form, right? And we're going to rank you on, you know, oh, what sales came from your leads? Like, that is death, right, you know, for them. It's like holding that butterfly. And so how do I know DevRel worked? Because I saw it, right? I was in the field. I was there in Mumbai. I saw uh, Martin actually was there and he was dead sick, sitting in the front row, could hardly move. But then, like, when he got up on that stage, he summoned whatever power he had <laughs> to do it. That's a big thing that, that we can talk about is you are the CEO of this company in this tiny little town called Boulder, Colorado, and all of a sudden you're starting to get reach everywhere across this globe. And you are saying, hey, we're going to go into marketing automation, DevOps. We're going to go into all these different types of pathways, channels, use cases, anywhere and anything to try to figure out what the best ways to scale, scale SendGrid, right? You have, you have some really, really good traction, growing. You've got a lot of word of mouth, brands starting to grow, and you got some good people. You've made some pretty good bets. You've had to change some people around, and we can come back to that. But all of a sudden, the, the big thing that I'm hearing that a lot of founders make this mistake on is I'm just going to go fundraise or I'm just going to focus on this one thing over here. And they remove themselves from the market or from marketing or from sales or from go to market. And they're not listening to the customer. And from what you're saying is, is you are actively involved, not necessarily selling each and every single deal yourself, oh. but you are out there and you can hear, you can feel, you can smell this working yeah i can I see need a, i need eight leads per person per day blah 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 and if we hired the right people in devrel in particular and then you just watch them in the field you see the audience reacting to them and then um they would work with the team so here's what you did whereas you didn't talk about singlet your job was to be hopeful right all of these DevRel people are full stack coders, right? They've all been founders of their own businesses. They've been coding since they were eight or whatever. They have all those geek stories about, you know, doing this stuff in the early days. And so they would stay at those hackathons and they, if, if it's a Tuesday, I don't give a, sh I don't care what they're doing, right? Or a Wednesday, but when it's, you know, Friday night or Sunday night or Saturday night on startup weekend or whatever, they'll stay there all night, right? With the teams and help them with their code or, you know, their production or whatever they need to get something functional to demo on Sunday. Right. They never say, oh, add SendGrid here. Right. It's just like 
you know, singer, we had the banners, we had, you know, we, were, we tried to be like Coca-Cola, right, which just tries to have 85 impressions for every, you know, citizen uh, a day, right? So it's like, uh, we had a, a tap in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, so when you went to where the startups hung out, and you pulled that tap, right behind it was the Sangre logo, right? It's just like, awesome. literally, like, it's like, we're paying for that gig, right? It's like, <laughs> that's awesome. Jeff Rell and other employees, you can always pick up a bar tab. Uh, yeah. Tim Paul started Boulder Beta, and the... Yeah. It's a, basically a party with startups, kind of pitching event in it. And if you want to say, you know, drinks on Sangre for the next 30 minutes, you could do that, right? Just creating that sense of goodwill so that when we're competing. Uh, there's a lot of trust there in your employees, you just said. I mean, just, hey, I trust yeah. you. Come up with your ideas. Use your creativity. Like yeah. sc- scale, scale. Uh, and, and we talked about this before we, uh, we hopped on the, on the air here, is you talk about scale as a feature. And this is a, uh, a feature of uh, empowering everybody to be able to build this feature. That's Talk right. Talk a little bit about that as you, as, you, as you continue that. Yeah, so part of the 4-H system, honest, frank, humble, happy, the honest part is being like very transparent, telling people what our real goals are, you know, how they impact them. So they're like, you know, up to speed on things, right? This is like what we're trying to do. And with Sengrid, it was very exciting, really, for the management team. And now uh, Denise, in particular, being, again, a low-ego sales leader. Because I love all my other VPs of sales I've had, but every one of them would have put their hand on that revenue and said, I did it. Right? This is my revenue. It's my commissionable revenue. I want my team paid on it. Right? Because that's how they think, right, as Oracle or, you know, enterprise field people. Right? Uh, but because she was, again, low ego, seen lots of playbooks, and like Chad, the same thing, the very much uh, Tim Muller, this way of doing business is you know, that low ego and a high decentralization. You push decisions down. And, uh, and I love Chad for his intellectual curiosity. Let's see if it works. And again, with our revenue growing so fast, we had incredibly easy access to capital. We made zero outbound phone calls for finance. Right. Zero. We're not allowed to tell anybody that. Because well, we, were, we were in the stack of all the cloud companies. Yeah. So all the cloud investors asked their CTOs, what's in your stack? And then everyone said Sengrid. And they're like, what's that? And so they call us and like, what is Sengrid? And why does everyone use you guys? So that was after a career of raising money, it was yeah. nice to be the pretty girl to dance for once and have them call us. <laughs> Uh, and by well, it's interesting based on the way that that the that the ground was kind of laid, and this is obviously timing in the market and the specific product of the problem and everything. Especially like you know, Sengrid starting today versus when it did would be a completely different story. Right. But the way Sengrid started to happen is is through all of this uh, evangelism and everybody doing all these different things and saying, "Hey, we'll be you know we'll help with marketing automation and we'll help with all these different types of." UK- use cases and different types of technologies, all of a sudden you are starting to seed from the bottom and you are having your developers who are in all of these other companies come to these hackathons, talk to all their friends online, do all these different things. Hey, how'd you do this? How'd you do that? And they're starting to use SendGrid, maybe as a hobby, maybe as a free thing, maybe over here. And all of a sudden it starts to trickle all the way up. Yeah, so it, it really, Sengri got inserted really at the moment of creation of whatever it was. So if you're Uber or Pinterest or Booking.com, maybe Booking different. But all those companies start off little and free, you know, basically free accounts. Uh, whenever, you know, the three founders were hacking it together that first, you know, night, it's like, oh, let's just see if this works, right? And instead of doing your own email infrastructure, you can just send it through SendGrid. So if you're in a certain section of San Francisco and someone saw you not using SendGrid, it was almost like a status thing. 
you'd be like, hey, dude, why are you doing that, right? You shouldn't be messing with email because it's boring. And Sengrid does it and it's free, you know, first 40,000 emails. So good enough for tonight, right? Let's just use that. And then, and so people could, there's a lot of things lined up. Part of it was people could onboard by themselves and there was no cost once they were on. It didn't cost us anything to send 40,000 emails. Didn't really cost anything to send a billion emails, right? You know, but billions, you know, then it got more interesting. You know, buy a data center for two and a half million dollars every now and then, your marginal cost is zero. So we had some really uh, spirited discussions about our- Very expensive. (laughs) (laughs) What does that look like? We have some really long, flat periods, which gets into your pricing and your negotiation strategy and all that stuff, which again, was we did have probably 20% of our sales we'd actually touch. So we did have a small inside team. Uh, okay, Vince uh, ran that. And so partly that was, again, my meddling a bit because uh, just coming from Oracle and my backgrounds, I'm, my bias is heavily towards uh, direct sales versus channel. And I like inside sales. Yeah. Inside always speaks field, but we can argue about that over here someday. Uh, and so I didn't want to see a company <laughs> at least to have a few salespeople you know, down the hall, right? It's like... Yeah. Come on, right? And uh, and there is you know some segment of the market that didn't want to talk to somebody, but the most of the market were technical, and they don't want to talk to anybody. That's what I think really drove the curiosity of our management team, and we're all open to trying to invent a new way to quote unquote sell this stuff, or how do we enable it to get bought more quickly and efficiently, uh, and really following Atlassian and Twilio, you know, we're kind of there. You know, Twilio was founded and funded a year ahead of us. So it was almost like a big brother kind of company. But you're basically, you know, juniors and seniors in high school, right? You're very close to each other and uh, very cooperative. And so uh, that, you know, we could just kind of learn from each other about, oh, like, how do you pay Delray people? Or, yeah, don't don't track them. Or yeah, it's just the blueprint for you already. Yeah, there. yeah. It's just like, I don't know if they track theirs or not, but I, I would, I don't, I don't know. Maybe they did. Uh, but but, it's interesting because you talk about the fact that you, you, you had, you didn't have salespeople, well, you kind of have salespeople. You, maybe they didn't have the, the typical, you know, direct sales, I'm a AE kind of role, but maybe they're coming in and did you have kind of like this technical sales to be able to, Maybe they talk through chat, talk through email, talk through, you know, demand generation and content. Like they, they were selling just in different ways. Well, there we hit our sales team in the support team. So how we compete against Amazon is we differentiated on support. So Amazon had a uh, decently featured, reliable, inexpensive product. How do you compete? And so Clayton Christensen model, right? We competed on convenience, broadly is his category. Love competing on convenience. I recommend that pretty much for everybody in the startup land. And just what does convenience mean to you, right? And so whether it's analytics and reporting, just making, you could onboard yourself in five minutes, three lines of code, right? So our developers and founders, Isaac and Tim, they made it super easy for cloud developers because they were cloud developers. So like, let's just make this super easy uh, to, to onboard. And so, uh, when Amazon came along, what we realized is that if something goes wrong and your mail doesn't get where it's supposed to go, as an Amazon customer, there's really no one to call. There's just no support. They call it public support. They're forums. You just support each other. You know, complain to another customer. And it's so cheap, they just say, send it again. Right? And so we took the opposite approach and we went heavily into support. We hired computer science grads from Boulder. Uh, and so they were, you know, 22 years old, again, been coding their whole lives. And put them on the front lines of support. And we ran support 24 seven, phone, chat, and email. 
huge differentiator because when does your email infrastructure go down when it's under load when it's under load are things going well they're going great and when things are going great and your infrastructure falls over you need to fix it like right now uh and before i joined saying i had a friend in denver who had started a little company uh doing uh sort of i can make you an author for 99 bucks right and uh, he got a big partnership with Barnes and Noble, and they ran a huge campaign. It's like, hey, you know, if you're a boomer, you want to write a book about your life or whatever, click here, and we'll help you write a book. And that link went to his site, which then you had to register. But the registration infrastructure fell over because so many people hit it. And so he called, started just googling, like, how do I fix Amazon mail sending or whatever? And he got our support number, right? And so uh, one of our policies, which is unusual, but this one came from me, is we would support non-customers, right? So our mission, very simply, and this is why I don't hate KPIs, was just make the mail flow. If you're a Sengrid employee and you're making mail flow, that's good. Not spam, that's the constraint. We had spam cops and they were awesome too. We need to do that, but make the mail flow. And so when this guy calls in a panic because he's going to lose his company because his whole company is based on this partnership and the partner's like, you freaking laid an egg on launch day. You know, I need this fixed like right now. Well, one of our guys can calmly walk him through the 10 steps. Do you have this set right, that set right? Oh, you don't have that set right, now it's working. And the person's like, wow, it seems like you know a lot about this. Like, you know, what do you cost? Well, it's free to start, you know, just super easy. And then, yeah. And so we created good ones. What one of my grievances with Oracle was if a customer called Oracle for support, first question is, what's your maintenance contract number? And if you don't have a maintenance contract number, then you go to the maintenance sales team, you pay your money, and then you come back, right? I'm just like, let's not do that. Let's just. No, it's, a, it's an expert level uh, differentiation model, and you remove all the friction. And. I, when, you, when you think about, and, and obviously we're all about scale here, is it makes scale so much easier. All, everything's coming into you. You have people who are spreading word of mouth. All of a sudden your customer acquisition costs go down and you're scaling revenue. You're not scaling people. You're not scaling teams. You're scaling revenue. And then you have the people that support that revenue in order for it not to you know go away. Well, we, we scale support people ahead of revenue because we anticipated big volumes from partnerships. Once Amazon came out and we signed up all the other partners, we're like, oh, we're going to get all this you know, stuff. That didn't materialize as fast as we wanted, but that's okay. The organic stuff you know, blew up. It really did. Well, good transition because I wanted to go into the direct versus channel. That's exactly where I wanted to go next. We talk a little bit about salespeople. You hit your salespeople inside of, of support, but I want to go back to Talk a little bit about direct versus channel. So you mentioned that you had a lot of these different channel partners. You had Rackspace, SoftLayer, all these companies that don't exist today because they got gobbled up. But for everybody, they did exist when this was all coming out when they first when it first started. When you think about it, I, I I'm a big big component of go direct first because channel is very difficult to get somebody else to sell your stuff if you can't sell it yourself directly. And so walk me through, like, what, what, did, what did you do? What were your learning moments around going direct versus eventually going to channel and, and that type of situation? So uh, SendGrid had almost always been, I don't know what to call it. it it's self-serve. So when the founders being cloud people you know, were all working remotely, right, because they just Starbucks or whatever, and they had people all over the world, Philippines, Poland, Germany, you know, up and down the West Coast, uh, and 
so they were living in the you know, metaverse, if you will, of 2010 or 09. Uh, and so uh, they just thought that if they put this out there, people will find it and use it. And it worked. <laughs> they did. <laughs> they were literally sending $10,000 a month to Isaac's PayPal account. It wasn't even incorporated yet. Right. And so it's that kind of pull. That's what I said. This is real product market fit, not whatever people say. That's product market fit that you've got to then create a company and deal with bank accounts and taxes and all that stuff, because it's like, oh, shit, people are sending us money from Turkey. Actually, is where a lot of money came from to start. But that's another story. Um, hello, PG. It turns out that uh, um, the, in Turkey, like, you know, having sex outside of marriage is not okay. But if you're married, it's okay. So there are certain organizations that arrange one hour marriages. And, uh, and they're very competitive uh, mafias that want to control that business. And they use email to um, fight with one another. And so they're trying to, like, you know, take down the other people's email systems. And so when they found a big email sending gun, on the internet, they're like, "Ooh, we want to use that, right?" To blast our people, <laughs> and take down other people's stuff. So we actually, when I got out of it, we uh, we banned every account in Turkey, just wrote off the whole country because it was just so uh, wouldn't meet our stamp spam uh, uh, standards. Okay, sorry, get me back on track. So let's talk a little bit about direct. Let's talk about channel. Like, so it's really starting. In, you have sure. a couple partners. Where are we at here? Yeah, so we're really with self-serve, and then we really just sort of tried to encourage that self-serve in many ways. So even the partner channel was uh, not really, I don't think, really creating demand. Like with Rackspace, there's a developer portal, and we always wanted, we thought of it as much like a B2C. We want to be on the top half of that portal, where the portal had a little news section. It's like, what's new on the Rackspace? And so we would publish like content from Carly or whatever, so that we we stayed in that. So when a developer first logged into Rackspace, like, okay, what do I need? We, we That's what we cared about in the partnership. We wanted above the fold, one-click, you know, sign up. Right, just like Amazon, right? Like, boom. You know, so we didn't care about the economics so much or all the, all the, you know, that part. It was just, we really wanted the developer experience to be super simple and easy. So we were just sort of fanning that. And then when I got hired and then sort of brought in an inside telesales team, uh, you know, some, we have some deals, you know, where, again, people have some questions or they're like, a, if you have a Shopify type business, we have a master account and 30,000 sub accounts and doing reporting and there's some issues, uh, you know, around that. And so, but that was definitely never the real driver of the whole business it was this sort of organic uh, bottoms, uh, bottoms up piece. I think where we made a big mistake in 2012 uh, was our uh, investors and our board uh, every quarter, you know, were telling us to go up market. You know, you need to sell bigger deals. You need to go up market because that, well, I'll just say it's their playbook, right? It's like, because I did this, these other 10 companies, not so they went to IPO and they moved up market. And I think the best advice I got was uh, from David Wan of TCV, not one of our investors. And I just would have this conversation with people like him. And I said, you know, when do you go up market? And he goes, you go up and your customers take you there. And I just like, I was just like, mic drop. That is, that is the answer. And so in 2012, explain that more. Explain that more. What, what do you? Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I think I understand. But when when listeners are, are are hearing that, what is an example of your customers taking so you there? Pinterest. So Pinterest started, you know, when it was four people, you know, in Soma, just 
little business and you know they start sending some mail they start sending them you know, a million a month paying a thousand bucks or something we had an awesome customer success team run by amy you know, uh musto and so she ended up scaling herself again hire senior early 17 people we never lost a major customer we never had a win-loss chart in a board deck because we didn't lose anybody right it's just amy took care of all the you know, all the big ones and so she took care of pinterest and as pinterest grew right and, and grew and grew and grew uh it's like they wanted different stuff, right? Around account management and various things, uh, or they need some kind of certification about our processes and things. We're like, <laughs> what's this? And so what you're hearing, right, is all that big company stuff that Oracle's got all checked off, uh, or I was at the Board of Cloud Elements, right? We partnered with SAP early. And so we had to act like a very mature company when we were a Series B company. And it took a third of our resources to do all that compliance stuff and the account management and all the things that you know made us uh, the glue for SAP Cloud. Uh, but with, with Stengrid, we we didn't do that you know in the early years because we were just working with other startups who didn't give a shit about any of that stuff. They're like, does it work? Is it cheap? Is it easy? Done. You know, like next. Uh, but so Pinterest was, was a great example. They were sort of leading that wave as one of our uh, biggest and fastest growing customers. And they were starting to ask us for things that we weren't delivering. So that'd be a great example of our customers leading you up market. And frankly, we all know, you know, basically an employee used to cost 10,000 a month. Let's say it's still a good estimate. So they start paying us 10,000 a month. They start paying us 20,000 a month. You know, Amy and I are like, hey, you know, we all know they got to be thinking about taking this in-house. And as a business, we didn't know where's the ceiling to our business because every business has a floor and has a ceiling. Yeah. And you know, our floor is very low, right? Like just use us even very small. But you know, when did people are like, mm, I'm, I'm not going to do this, right? And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, so when they got to 20,000, flew out there, right? With Amy and, and Denise, we sat down with the Pinterest people and we're like, hey, you know, you guys are going fast. Like, you got, what, what's, what's your thinking about taking this in-house? We just want to know because if you want to do it, we'll make sure there's an orderly transition, right? Let's be cool about it. And uh, they said, they're like, we love Amy. Our business is growing so fast. It's just chaos. We've had a different person every quarter in charge of infrastructure, you know, in your area. And you're like, you're like the, the calm eye in the hurricane of Pinterest. He's like, that's the last thing we want to change, right? And whatever you charge us, it's not anyone's radar. It's, you know, you're still stupid cheap, you know? It's just, you're, just, you're, just, you're a solved problem. And, and we live in the world of, you know, they're scaling their own business, right? They don't need to go invent other problems. You know, they're not, they were so far away from that. But, well, it's, inter it's interesting what you're saying here because uh, you, you essentially have a, a, a PLG moment, right? A PLG sales motion where, they're coming in, they're using it, product-led growth, and the growth is growing and growing and growing and growing. And you got you got some big-name companies as, as customers fairly early on that also had some explosive growth. So you got some great, great traction there. And all of a sudden, you're starting to see within your own numbers, right? You're looking at your own usability numbers as, as scale is happening and saying, yeah, at what point in time do you bring this in-house? And that's, you know, with any type of business and any type of outsourced resource, is when am I going to put this in house? And I think that's a very, very legitimate concern. And what, what I'm hearing from you is you actually are looking at those numbers. How often do you look at those those types of numbers to be able to proactively go to these customers? Probably monthly. Monthly. Okay. So you're looking at them pretty frequently to be able to say, hey, we need to make sure that we get proactive here. We cannot all of a sudden have Pinterest call us and say, thanks, but no thanks. 
<laughs> I appreciate it. We're going to transition away. We decided to do this in-house. So none of this is coming as a shock or, or, or you know, a blind spot or anything like this. You know that this is a very legitimate part of scaling, especially your customer scaling. Because the whole point is you help them scale. So part of SendGrid's business is helping them grow faster. A lot of businesses out there are, hey, we do the thing for you, but as your business grows up, maybe we hit our ceiling. You guys are never really hitting your ceiling. It's unlimited. You send one email, you send a gazillion emails. SendGrid can help you. Yeah, we, you can, we can send a lot, but there's a limit to how much they would pay. And I'm not sure how much I can talk about all that, but it was, it was like so many things. It, it was sort of ironic in that uh, we were doing a million dollar deal with Pinterest. And because we had salespeople get involved or whatever, right? And then, uh, and the board is all happy, right? Because, oh, we got a million dollar deal. But like Chad and I, we do, we're like, this is actually a very, very sad day for the company because that million dollar deal showed a limit on the upside of how they would not keep paying, you know, they want to know how much, how much, they were sending a billion a month, let's say, and they want to know how much were you going to charge us for the second billion? Right. And maybe this is not for, not for the podcast, but you know it was basically zero for the second billion they're like we're gonna only pay you you know sixty five thousand a month and we know you don't have any additional coin. now chad would say yes because uh, eventually we might somewhere but frankly that was all on booking but another story there but it's like i'm like and so yes we wrapped together this thing into an annual contract or whatever and we didn't do annual contracts we maybe had two dozen um and because the customers again product like the customers would lead you to enterprise right we didn't want to have contracts with our customers because that creates a uh, an opportunity for them that it creates a decision point, right? If you sign it up month to month years ago, you know, this month, next month, next month, next month, you know, whatever. But if you say, Hey, every February is renewal. Oh, are we going to keep saying or not? It's February. What are we going to do? Now you have to pay a sales team to tell them to stay, right? No, just don't have contracts, you know, and just keep, like that. Sorry, your performance is your contract. It's a lot of counterintuitive things. Yeah. Uh, make some of the, the, the contrarian example to maybe, uh, a classic, uh, you know, B two B SaaS, right? I do think just the, the classic, you know, like doing direct first. So uh, I was a very security software company, and when we were closing with uh, William Blair Partners out of Chicago, raising a lot of money at the time, and one of the associates whispered to me, and he says, "Don't bury the gold." And I looked at him and I said, "What do you mean?" He says, "We gave you this pile of money, right? You know, put it to work, right? And we're gonna." go see you make a dent in the world, right? And so I've, always, I've, I've kind of said that, but it really gets to the heart of the conflict between a VC uh, and the operator. Because the operator founder has one company, right? And so you have a different risk profile than a VC that has a portfolio. They want big wins and, 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 and zeros, right? Ones and zeros are good, right? But you know, as a founder, you don't want that zero. And so, but what we did was where we spent the money is we did an inside sales program, we did a field sales program, and we did a channel sales program concurrently in our Series B. Okay, that was a disaster because it was super expensive. Yeah, a lot of moving pieces. A lot of moving pieces, but you know, we had the money to hire the people. So we had a guy based in Atlanta and DC and Dallas and you know all that stuff. And then we had channel reps out there, you know, double paying channel deals and all that. And then we had the inside team. And so I, clearly in hindsight, what we should have done is start with the inside team because you can, you can iterate so much faster as you try the different sales processes, what objections we're going to get as we go to different segments or verticals or whatever. And we can kind of you know, debug our sales process and then go direct field, 
right? Say, oh shit, we're always going to New York or San Francisco or Houston or whatever. Like, put some people out there and you know do that face to face. And then once we know how to fish, we can teach someone else how to fish, right? Like, okay, let's set up the channel and do the channel reps and theoretically pass it off to them. They can go get the stuff. We'll never go get direct. I mean, that's the the classic, you know, step step step. How you go from founder led sales to an inside team, great to a field team that you can still kind of control pretty well, but they're not literally under your nose. You're not having lunch with them every day, you know, then to a channel team, which is kind of like pushing a string. And again, I think when you interview and hire people, you should ask them like, so are you a channel person or are you a direct person? And I'd be like, direct all the way. Again, I joined Sangre, it doesn't mean I'm gonna crush it with a direct approach because I'm flexible. And I said, that doesn't make sense. And I want to do call a developer and say, hey man, you should use our stuff. No, I'm not selling marketing tech here or something, right? It's like, it's like, trying to how to sell the developers is uh, it was a good uh, it was a good challenge back then right to kind of figure what, that so out. What, uh, curiosity here uh, inside sales you got a, a outbound inside sales team or is everybody coming in you're using kind of the the product to be able to say hey these people are using all this stuff yeah so I'm gonna come in from the about, right? I mean, just again, genericize the company a bit, right? You've got some kind of content marketing, you're pushing stuff out there, they hit a website, they do downloads or white papers and generate that stuff. They get a score and you have an inside team with junior people, right, that are doing some of that calling and setting up appointments for more senior people and closing deals under 5K, one call close on a credit card, you know, that whole thing. And then 5K to 50K is a more senior rep. You know, maybe one call, do a demo, you know, take a sale, SE out with you, that kind of thing. And then, you know, above 50K, you know, six, nine month cycles, contracts, blah, 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 you know, that just all that stuff. And so, um, you know, even with other business, we, we, we were good enough to get like a good enough traction on the product side. Uh, even the business we ended up selling to Oracle was half uh, product led. Just we were in four, it was 800 MBA programs, Crystal Wall Software. Uh, the Mario Kart simulations of your second year finance course, you learn how to run NPV calcs with yeah. Crystal Wall. And then you get a job at GE or Ford or Pepsi, and you say, oh, I need to use Crystal Wall. So you just use your Amex card and buy it. And so we'd have a copy. So you're a customer for a thousand bucks, and then you get a call. Hey, you're a cost analyst. Tell us about your department. You know, who else is there? Oh, there's 300 of you there. Terrific. Let's come out and we'll train, you know, the 20 people in your department. Uh, Two-day training, you know, with software, it's, you know, 35,000 bucks. Your boss can approve it. You know, it's just bang, bang, bang. That was probably, you know, 50% of the business was the one-offs. 25% was the sell the department. 25% was like, okay, now that we have, you know, a thousand people at GE, let's go license. We licensed 305,000 people at GE and got a corporate installation for all their stuff. And so you go to IT and say, hey, you've got all these things on different maintenance contracts. You go to finance and say, these people all paid full price. <laughs> Thank you. You know, like, let's roll this into one contract, one maintenance thing, give you a global discount, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, there's there's a pattern that makes sense. It just doesn't map to SendGrid very neatly because it was such a quirky thing to, to quote unquote, sell to a developer. Even like Rally Software didn't sell to developers, right? You're selling to managers and, you know, developers or product owners, you know, people who run how development gets uh, processed, but not like we were the founder. Yeah, I, mean, I think you have the different, you have the different, um, you have the different processes based on, on the market. And if you're creating a category, just because this is the way that you used to do it and the way that you're comfortable with it, like, I mean, for everybody listening, if you ever want to be in uh, sales and never make cold calls, go work at a company like SendGrid that everything just comes inbound and you have to do everything via email or chat or, you know, whatever it is. Yeah. Because, a great way who's technical wants to talk on the phone. 
Yeah. A great way to scale that kind of a telesales is if you go hire normal telesales people, they're going to know what their quotas are and their commissions. And, and there's so much uncertainty. You're just like, no, no. And so through Techstars, uh, we met Emily Griffin. And she came from Kansas City with her startup idea with her husband. And I'd say the community loved her and her husband, but we hated their idea. Uh, it was the online scheduling of offline greeting cards. And I, okay. But she was awesome. And so like hiring a founder. So we said, why don't you come work for us? We've got this exciting thing and we need you know, someone to figure out how to sell this stuff or what parts sold and what parts bought. Again, a key issue with scaling is to distinguish what is sold and what is bought. I had one company with the one we went to Oracle with where uh, we did not keep track of that. So we ended up paying sales reps on things that were bought. So we just lowered the commission rate, you know, to sort of a blended commission rate, whether it was maintenance or services, it was all one rate. Uh, but at Sanguid, we were super clear. Things that were bought were not commissionable and things that were sold, love salespeople, right? But I'm going to pay them a lot for what they sell, but I don't want to pay them for stuff that was bought. Uh, and so we, with her, we just have an honest discussion about you know, what salary do you need? What variable is sort of interesting? We'll just pay it to you as you figure out what does a rep look like, right? With just this, again, high, honest trust, delegation. It's like, let's just see what, you know, you don't know. Like, and so I think in a normal semi-mature, say series A organization, uh, my deal with the sales team would be, hey, look, here's your plan for a year, right? And if you make me look like an idiot because you blow it out or, you know, it's a tough year for you, we'll, we'll settle up again next year and, you know, move the, Goalposts around again, but with a saying, with anything happening so fast, you couldn't have a one-year plan. You know, a one-month plan might have been about oh, yeah, one, one-week plan. Yeah, no, about enough in a month that most businesses would grow in a year, right? So, yeah, a lot of companies go three hundred thousand, four hundred thousand a year, not in a month, and then to five, six, seven, eight, all the way to you know four million plus per month. Uh, yeah, quite a quite a machine. But hiring ex-founders is a great. A uh, way to fill some of those scaling positions where someone can uh, think sort of laterally and not be overly wedded to a to a, a way of doing things. And since they're an ex ex founder, you know, they really know like you know what getting kicked in the pants means, right? Just like that's so freaking hard. And I found I've done this probably four times I can think of when they only have like one job to worry about. They can aid whatever it doesn't matter what the job is in the company. They're just like, okay, <laughs> you just want to do that? I don't worry about fundraising and everything else. Like, okay. And they've got the big brain, they'll, they'll get on it, right? And yeah, so they'll, they'll just, they'll, they'll yeah, and that, maybe it'll stay forever, right? But I think if someone stays two, three years, that's a fair trade, right? Then if we're not growing fast enough to make it interesting for them. That's okay. So, uh, so let's, let, as, as we're kind of wrapping up, uh, wrapping this up, what, uh, what, are, what are some kind of um, takeaways from things that you might have done differently? Uh, looking back at the experience, like, can you, can you name one or two things that you look at and you say, you know what? probably would have done that a little bit differently. I know you, you went over a couple of great takeaways today, but... Um... So that lesson about, well, you know, go to enterprise when your customers take you there was a lesson I learned the hard way because you know, part of board management, right, is you can only sort of put them off so long if every board meeting is sort of a beating on the head about sell-out market. And so we, did, we, we hired a vendor, done that senior person from Return Path who had sold email delivery systems to Fortune 500 companies, Rolodex of 50 active accounts he'd worked with previously, and we, you know, set them, you know, with the resource you need to kind of go after it. And it was a complete wipeout. Six months later, he had no traction. And what we learned was like, there was just, we weren't selling against any pain. Uh, at the enterprise, who had already built, you know, uh, on-prem systems, they're not going to switch to the cloud. We couldn't go and evangelize. Oh, uh, I tried to do that to the CEO of Marketo. 
I'm like, because I knew him through Bessemer stuff. And I was just like, hey, man, you know, just let us use your stuff. He's like, you know, send your mail. He's like, he's no way. I got my delivery team of, you know, three or five guys down the hall. I'm like, I got 100 people doing it full time. And he's like, yeah, but if that doesn't go, I can't tell my customers, wait a minute, I need to call Jim, right? I'm going to go down that hall and kick their ass, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, just, go. There's no way. It, it was almost too core to their mission to then outsource. But Microsoft, like, let me send, a, you know, Facebook, they more than half of the rest of the world combined back then, right? Just like, yeah, they're like, no, there's no pain. And the only pain was really an insurance play, right? I said, hey, Phil at Marketo, it's like, if, if your stuff doesn't work, you know, We'll back it up. You know, we'll we'll make it work for you. you know, I think we'll we'll make the mail flow. And I would I'd tell a lot of our cocktails or whatever. I'm not trying to like hide it from them or just I just yeah like we'll help you right. So if your five guys getting a problem they can't fix, you know we got some big machines over here. We can redirect the mail and and get it going right. And then you can figure out what you want to do with your team. But uh, but this stuff worked well enough. I guess he never called me to say man. But I'd circle back about once a year. <laughs> like so bad. Yeah, uh, yeah, that makes. I mean, I, I think that's a huge one. I think a lot, I think a, a huge learning that I, I personally had multiple times, um, and I and I even coach people on this, but it's don't go to the enterprise too early. I, I know that you want the big million dollar deals that, and they take forever. Uh, there's a million different pieces. It's hard to quote unquote convince them to do stop doing what they're doing. They're the ones that have plenty of money to kind of move from one thing to the other yeah. thing. Yeah, why are we going to do it this quarter, right? We're kind of, it's just like, it's got to be a super compelling need and a lot of issues uh, with that. And so I think yeah, part of my I guess, board management strategy, right? You just got to make that call all the time as a founder or CEO or as a VP of sales, frankly, because, you know, if things aren't going well for the CEO, first person to go is the VP of sales. See, not many companies. Oh, then the, that buys the CEO another two, three quarters. Right? <laughs> then they shoot someone else right, or whatever it is, right? Well, a new product comes out or you just hope something happens, right? Um, but the other thing I think, and here's a tough one and where I struggled, uh, was when you have your team, say it's your C team that takes you to A and things are going well, or it's your A team that takes you to B and things are going well. It's like, when do you change that team so they're ready for you know C and beyond? And let's just say, you know, B minus and below is sort of like you know, early B and below is sort of one group of people. And then, you know, late B and later is like a different group of people. It's kind of, you know, it's, uh, a little more of the been there, done that versus the rising stars. Uh, more certainty, less uncertainty. It's just the, you know, the dynamism or whatever. I say it's more fun in the early stages, right? And it's more MBA and EBITDA and spreadsheets and execution in the later stages. Um, and so, you know, that that's a hard thing. And so it did end up to replace one person, but I did it late and I should have, you know, probably done that uh, sooner. But it's hard because if it's like, you know, it's the Kind of like, you know, the person who brought you here, right? It's like, wow, thank you so much for getting us to the Series B. Then, you know, you then want to cut them loose and let them, you know, go back to the Series C company and, you know, say, hey, that's your your scaling window, right? It's just, those are tough, yeah, yeah. tough conversations to be like, hmm. And I think on just team management, there's two theories of like uh, replacing someone every quarter, like the Jack Welch GE model. And I'd say it's kind of West Coast VC model, right? Oh, we're, we're upgrading the team, up-leveling the team. You know, used to, you know, here, 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 right? And so I think that's chaos. Uh, I think that uh, teams, you know, uh, forming, norming, storming, performing, there's four stages of teams. And stage one is forming. If you're swapping them someone every quarter, you never get to the performing stage. Uh, you're always kind of resetting the team dynamic back to chaos. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that you want to build in flat spots. So maybe like once a year you might swap three people 
And then it's like, okay, new team. Let's figure out how long we work together. Let's execute. You know, maybe it's even longer, like 18 months, right? But maybe it's about a funding cycle, right? So you're like, oh, all right. And so, but, you know, then making all those changes, that's generally been my pattern to be like, okay. And so, yeah, when I left, is, that is whole- that scheduled? Is that something that you, I mean, that seems like a, if you're doing it at, at that kind of rate from a, 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 on a quarterly or yearly basis, I mean, this is something that you're constantly thinking about uh, of the speed of the velocity of the growth of the business. You're actively just looking at people to be like, hey, do I have the right people in the right places? Do I need somebody else? Like that's yeah, for sure, very, part of very challenging. For sure is your annual planning process. So as a CEO, you start July 1, right? The day after July 1 is January 1, right? That second half of the year goes like that. And so by August, you're talking to your management team, you know, September, you know, the board, October approvals, you know, January launch, right? So you have, so, you know, when you sort of wrap up the first half and you look at the second half, that's when you have to start thinking, hey, am I going to have this sales leader with this marketing leader? You know, are they the ones that are going to take us into our, you know, 2023 plan, yeah. right? Or are they sort of, you know, gone sideways or, or whatever? And so I think I'd say one bright red flag is if one of your leaders raises their hand and says, boy, I love the company, I love working with you, and if the day should ever come, you need to hire, you know, the CRO or whatever over me, no problem, <laughs> right? I think that that is a, uh, a clear ask for help uh, that I missed. Interesting. And I took it at face value, and in hindsight, I'm like, that was a person asking me for help, and I didn't help them, and then we did get sideways, you know, around performance stuff, uh, and then they were no longer the company, right? And so that was not what they wanted, and not what I want is a good, you know, good person. Yeah, that is definitely a, a, a cry without, you know, it's, it's tough. There, there's a lot of a type people in that role. When they're a rising star, you want, you know, you want the title, you want the glamour, you want the ego, you want all these things, you want the performance. But there's also this side that says, eh, I'm starting to get a little bit over my skis here. And it's hard to just kind of take that ego and throw it in the back seat and say, you know what, Mr. and Mrs. CEO, I need some help. It's hard to say. So we go at it in a little bit more subtle to go, well, if you want to hire an SVP of sales or a CRO or a you know CMO or whatever it is, I'm, I'm totally on board. I would love to learn from that person as well. Yeah. Yeah. So just, again, with the CEO, you need to really have those listening ears up and just other things. If someone does a skip level meeting, you know, so if you're director of content or whatever, or senior manager of DevRel, is like because you want to have an open door, right? So whether you're the sales leader or you're the you know, leader of the whole company, I think being the sales leader puts you in a good position to be a CEO uh, someday. Uh, is that when someone does a skip level meeting, you should always take them, right? Because you know that's good for a leader to do. Uh, but you should never say anything, right? And just quietly note to yourself that that person's probably on the bubble, right? And if you talk to their direct boss or in the chain, like, oh, that person talked to you, like, that's funny. I mean, they'll show up with their little, you know, scorecard of all their achievements and great stuff they're doing and why they love the business and laugh at all your jokes, etc. It's like, hmm, just not many of those. Yeah, read, read the room, right? Read the yeah. room. See, see what you know. See what's between the lines. That makes like, a lot of sense. Hmm. Jim, I got, I got three last questions. They should be pretty quick for you, and that's how we like to end the show. Um, I really appreciate uh, the time here today. Wealth of knowledge, a lot of, lot of good things. You ready? Fire away. All right. Favorite book or resource that you recommend to founders at the be- beginning stages of scaling? Um, 
could be a podcast. It could be a person. It could be. No, it's like Patrick Lencioni. Uh, has written some books, and the first one, so I'll start there, was The Five Temptations of a CEO. And uh, it's an easy read. It's written in screenplay format. It's a lot of white space and dialogue, and you turn the pages fast, and it leaves a hook at the end of every chapter, which is only two or three pages long. And so you want to turn the page and see what happens next. And you can read it on a plane between here and San Francisco. Uh, and he's got five dysfunctional teams and some other ones. And I think what Patrick gets right is getting clear on culture. And so we didn't really talk about that, but having uh, you know, clear on culture, you know, I've got this system, and you want to come up with interview questions for it, and then sort of scaling the people part is what makes it all work, right? And so if you're not clear on sort of who you are as an individual, as a founder, and then your co-founders and those early hires, as you go from 10 to 25 to 50, 7,500 or more, yeah, and you're getting, you know, even with 25 people, you start to have departments and things, right? And it's not just, hey, call production. Uh, you know, that's just, uh, it's important to have that sort of foundation. So I would put Patrick, uh, it's probably been most influential uh, on me about uh, the scaling part. Awesome. Anything um, that would be helpful to founders to direct them to, to get more of Jim Franklin? Um, so at Jim Franklin at Twitter is where I kind of, uh, you know, post about this. If Twitter blows up in the next whatever while, certainly still active with uh, LinkedIn to uh, try and share content about uh, what I think is sort of new or interesting or stories around uh, scaling, which wonderful. We will link that all to the uh, to the show notes as well. And last but not least, anything else to share? Anything? Any uh, final remaining tips, tricks? Uh, wisdom that uh, that you want to part with. I'll give you one more. Rainbow teams. So yeah, you're talking uh, about. Yes, I had that circle. Thank you for going back uh, to well, tell me about in, that. In scaling. And so uh, a rainbow, of course, has many different colors. And since I live in Boulder, right, sort of rainbow land, right? So, but it's not that kind of rainbow. Uh, the idea is uh, sort of like the rising stars and been there, done that. Uh, is that if you hire been there, done that, so when you're in this chaotic scaling phase, uh, the risk is uncertainty. So as you go forward in your business and say you think you're going to do a channel model, and so you're going to go hire been there, done that, you know, really good, check the box channel people, but they're one stripe, they only have one color, let's call it red, they're Oracle Red Channel Masters, right? And you're like, I am hiring the best people in the world, right? You tell your board or your boss, whatever, I'm hiring the best people in the world. I mean, really the best channel people might be Oracle channel managers, you know, there. And so you hire them, and then you go forward a few quarters, and what happens? You realize, oh, we don't have enough compelling value prop in there, something's issue. You know, we really need to do some other model, right? We might need to do a self-serve model or, let's say, an inside sales model, right? You got the religion, right? And said, okay, we should start there. And now what? You've got these channel managers because, you know, let's say inside sales, or we'll call it, color them green, right? Well, shit, I got, I got a red team, and we were going after the red plan. And now we need to go after the green plan with the red team. That doesn't work. So now we have to, let's go hire the best telesales people there are, right? Boy, there's some great ones in Denver and some sales managers, and they can crunch, crunch, crunch. But, oh, guess what? Two quarters later, now we need to go after the yellow strategy, something no one's ever done before. Now we need to go find some people, some yellow-colored people that can go figure it out some hybrid new way of selling stuff that's going to work in our market you know, for the next while. And so if you would have hired the first person, not the best person, for the channel job, it's someone who's merely good at channels, but also 
They were a little bit good at telesales. They're a little bit good at field sales. They're a little bit good at product growth. They're a little bit, you know, they have those multiple playbooks, right? So you're sub-optimizing on your A plan. Seems a little weird. But what are you doing? You're buying an option for flexibility if the plan changes. And having sat on a lot of boards these last 10 years. The plan changes a few times. Oh, yeah. You know, even accounting software, when they have the future planning periods, they always have like plan one and plan two, budget one, budget two, right? So even within a year, everyone expects everything to change, right? So to hire people that are that good, but brittle, you know, they're only good at one thing, you need to be in a low uncertainty environment. So save that for your series C or later, where you can be like, okay, let's go get some people that are going to just... You know, yeah, I work at a payroll company now, right? And so we need to have people that can process payroll, but you got to do it right every time, right? And so there's there's a need for that sometimes in earlier stage companies, but mostly I'd say see or later. So think about rainbow teams. Think, does this person have a switching option embedded in them? And that can be very valuable for you to have like one team as you are shifting around trying to figure out. Um, I mean, even if you think earlier stage. So that's that's at the beginning stages because you haven't figured out the right channel, you haven't figured right. out all these different things. So you're you're gonna kind of change. And if you hire the one person who's really good at this one thing, and that's no longer the thing that you got to do, you got to start all over again. Right. So reading like you know Black Swan and Nicholas Tubbs books and stuff about so much random uncertainty in life and markets, we generally underestimate. We definitely underestimate that. So think of like COVID, right? Everyone had their business plans in twenty right, approved them in October of. The previous year, really, you know, hired people in January, January, February, March, and we're all ready to go launch, you know, for real in March. And now it's like, oh shit! Now we're gonna riff a third of the people and maximize our cash instead of maximizing our growth rate. It's just like, you know, in I would say a Series B or earlier company, there is just a lot more risk and uncertainty than what you perceive. And so having, uh, you know, liberal arts people, right? Someone with that, you know, multiple stripe background that can do different things. It's a good way to think about diversity in your business. There's many dimensions to diversity, but, you know, again, I'm a product person, right? I'm a direct person and a product person, product versus services, another dimension. Uh, and so someone else's channel and like services would be like my opposite. <laughs> they, they would yeah. see the world through a very different lens. Like, why don't you charge for all this stuff? Because I'm like, because that's gross and bad. I don't want to do that. I just want to sell product. I call that pure golden revenue, right? It gets better multiples and margins and the VCs like it. And I want to brag about that. It'll mess up my story by charging for services. <laughs> but you know, you charge for services sometimes. Um, but anyway, rainbow teams, I think is the, uh, rainbow team. is a like good, it. that's, that's a good one. That uh, that's a great way to end. I I I, uh, I cannot thank you enough for being here. I give you one more. Question. Awesome. You gotta go. Yeah, keep going. So so we got friendly with Sequoia. We didn't take money from them, uh, but they asked this question we didn't know the answer to, which is about our top twenty customers. So you asked how often do we check on Pinterest or whatever. Uh, so Chad would update this chart. It was like our top twenty customers. You know that we you know that pay us money. Say whatever uh, December. Or November 30th. And so the nice thing about this chart is you have this list of like, there's a number, but then it, it went back to the left, it showed their history. And so you can see the shape of the curve, like how did that come from? Is it like flat and low and they just spiked up? Did it like spike up and tip over? Did it spike up and drop down? Does it go up and down like a sawtooth? It's just like, and so you could see like uh, Heroku, one of our, you know, in our resellers, like would all be in a, in a pile. You could kind of see that curve and it, it was a great way to kind of visualize that top 20. Because you're like, all, I mean, almost all, all our growth came from our customers' growth, right? Because we didn't have contracts, there were no caps, you just, they, they send more, we make more. Just, again, there's no KPIs, just make the mail flow. Then the revenue will come and we can get money, we can pay you and life is good, right? It's just like, make the mail flow. And so seeing those curves and then 
you could tell when someone would go up and then go down, right? <laughs> so it's like, okay, but then some other company would be going up, right? And we thought we really should use those curves and start a fund, right? Just invest in those companies that are starting to send a lot of mail, right? It's a great, uh, I think, early indicator uh, you know, for who's doing something interesting. In, in yeah, I mean, I, I, that, I mean, that's what it's about, right? Is looking for those signals and those indicators to be able to, make, then you can start to make the right bets based on yeah. that. Yeah, but just putting a trend on that top 20 chart was very powerful for how we thought about, you know, the, the health of that segment of the business. That's interesting. Yeah. I think there's uh, I think there might be another uh, episode in the in the making uh, and we can d dig more into to that as, as well as a, a lot more of this. Jim, thank you. This is super awesome. Fun. Super, 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 super enlightening, super helpful. Um, we'll 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 uh, we'll have the transcript and everything for everybody as well. Um, and uh, can't thank you enough. We'll have to have you on again. Thanks so much. All right. That's it for this week's episode of From Start to Scale. Be sure to click that subscribe button and follow us so you don't miss our next episode. I'm Alex Newman. See you next time.